Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. You know who my guest is. You know him very well. Nonetheless, I'm going to intro him. Adam Nolly Get Good is a musician, engineer, producer, mixer, co-founder of Get Good Drums, and a mastering engineer. Throughout an incredible career, Nolly has worked on a tremendous amount of projects from his own efforts, such as Periphery, to working with some of the best artists in metal, such as Animals as Leaders, Devin Townsend, and a ton more. Dude is uh, a great mixer, a great guitarist, a great bassist entrepreneur, very cool guy too. Always a great conversation. Whenever whenever I talk to him, it's just always a great conversation. So it's a pleasure to welcome Nolly back to the URM podcast. Let's do this. Adam, Nolly, get good. Welcome back to the URM podcast. Thanks, Ail. It's great to be connected again. It's been a while. It has, but you know, what's been going on? It has been a huge amount going on, hasn't it? And what I was thinking, our, our last conversation was uh, also with Ermin on the line, which was great. Yeah. But, uh, a little bit less personal between the two of us, if that makes sense. Like another person in there. Yeah. He's also had a lot going on. No doubt. Yeah. It's been a while since I caught up with him, but I know he's had a huge, huge change in, in terms of where he's living and some of what he's doing. So, Are you feeling good about where things have been ending up for you recently? Like with, since the pandemic, with your changes and a kind of prolific, I think, kind of prolific level of uh, output. But how are you feeling about, I don't know, your life post-pandemic? Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah, I know. Um, no, 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 it's cool though. It's been really interesting. And, and knowing we were going to do this interview, I've kind of had, you know, been reflecting and thinking a bit more about all the changes because it has been really big. You know, I think we first taught, you know, quite early on in the pandemic and I, and I was already kind of focusing more on product design kind of stuff than, than working for clients. And that's pretty much continued, actually. It's just been such a, a lifey period of time. Like there's just been so many major life milestones, uh, both good and unfortunately bad as happened to all of us to deal with. 
uh, plus the pandemic and it's just been so many changes not not in the least the fact that my wife and I and our parents we've got a little one as of the beginning of the year to look after which is just you know it's an incredible journey to go on it's been an amazing period of lots of reflection lots of personal growth lots of enjoyment of things outside work and I definitely don't feel like I could have kind of maintained working with clients I think there's too much of a responsibility there in terms of their deadlines and being accountable to them, you know, when you sign up to work on a record or something like that. So that's kind of, you know, my, my output dropped significantly on that side of things. However, I was able to kind of work more on my own schedule and develop all sorts of products that I'd had in, in the works for quite some time. And, and yeah, to look back, it's crazy. I mean, yeah, you know, we've got signature pickups. Dude, so much stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and plus GGD products, which are all kind of, you know, little personal projects of one sort or another. That's interesting that you phrased it about their deadlines versus yours. That actually um, was one of the reasons that I wanted to get out of production was I was having a hard time, I guess, committing myself to other people's deadlines. I had my own timeline on things that I felt needed to happen. And you really do have to accept somebody else's deadline and throw yourself into it and let that become your life. Um, there's You have to. That is part of the job of being a producer or a mixer is, I mean, if you don't do that, you're gonna you're gonna get fired or uh, or not hired again at least. You can't do that. You have to take people's timelines and deadlines very very seriously. You have to take them as seriously as if they were your own yeah. because they are your own. And if you can't really do that for whatever reason, whether it your life has just evolved or um, you have other things you want to do, like that's it's very important I think to be honest with yourself about your ability to do that or not. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think what you're expressing is something which I hear, you know, I've listened actually to plenty of your podcasts through the pandemic as well. It's been a great companion when doing stuff. I'm and sorry. No, no, it's great. It's it's great. And it's awesome, everything that you've achieved with, with Nail the Mix and all of the other projects. Thank you. You know, you just hear time and time again, producers talking about either how long the hours that they need to work are or just, you know, how 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 much projects always require kind of more energy than you expect them to. How clients always manage to somehow, and it's actually not their fault, but, you know, you end up receiving your work either ahead of time or late and never kind of on time or things stretch out and you always invariably end up with more on your plate than you anticipate. Um, and it just seems to be a given in any kind of creative industry. And I think it's only fair to your clients, but also to yourself, to your family, if you have one, you know, to the people that, that you're responsible for to try and not overcommit because it doesn't really help anyone. I think that's where you lead to getting burnt out with work, where you lead to, you know, getting burnt out mentally yourself, where you lead to kind of catastrophically letting down the people that are close to you. And, and it's just a tough thing to manage now, I think. Yeah, you're actually a perfect example. When I've had producer friends approach me for advice, really, on starting businesses, the first thing I always ask is, do you want to produce less? Because you're going to have to. Um, so are you okay with that? Are you okay with that no longer being 90% of your life or 95% of your life? And if so, if you're ready for that, then okay, then I'm happy to talk to you about this and, you know, give you my thoughts. But if you're not ready for that, then maybe find a partner or 
put it, you know, revisit the idea later or whatever. But otherwise, there's just no way. There's no way to really get something off the ground without committing yourself to it. And we just don't have enough hours and energy in the day to be that person for artist clients in the studio and then also an entrepreneur. It's just something has to be reduced. There's no way around it. Yeah, I agree. And whereas maybe in the past, it was more feasible to work fewer projects. And as you kind of go up the rungs, you're going to start earning some serious money. You know, I mean, there was so much more money in, in production before that maybe, you know, you could kind of claw back that balance there. I feel like now it really has to be something that you're super passionate about, not just making things sound good, but the whole the whole thing, you know, being in contact with, with a band or being in very close communication with a band for a month or more and really just being super passionate about making that record as good as it can possibly be and navigating the personal relationships involved in that, which for me personally is not something I'm always up for. You know, I, there's some people who just, they absolutely love that. Like you interviewed uh, Dan Weller recently, who, who's someone, uh, he's a hero of mine and he's kind of become a friend. And I know him, his personality and from hearing directly from him that it's just best thing in the world to go into a studio with a group of people and figure out how to get the best out of them and what makes them all tick. It's like the whole package of making a record is like awesome for him. And for me, it never really was that. So, you know, it all kind of goes a bit hand in hand really where... I just love getting sounds. I love, and, and being in studio situations with people that are cool and easygoing and, and friends or that become friends over the process, that's amazing for me. But just like the daily grind of working and constantly forging those relationships or working through trickle, uh, tricky personal circumstances and just working through whole records. You know, I find doing a single or two is amazing fun, but it's a different kind of work once you get into like track eight of a metal record. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like the tones are there. There's, there's only so much experimentation as far as tones go. And it's just, it's like, it's a grind at that point. Or, it, you know, if you're on a deadline, it's a grind. And some people love it. They thrive on it. And for me, like, I'm already like, oh, I kind of want to just dial in tones again for like the next thing. See, that's why I think what you have thrown yourself into makes perfect sense by creating new products and doing a select number of productions or mixes and GGD, just all that. It, it basically allows you to keep the passion up. I mean, of course, it's a lot of work, but it doesn't allow it to ever get to that point where you are track eight on a quad track metal record where it's basically literally just factory work at that point. No, exactly. Exactly. And, and I feel very, very grateful and lucky to be in the position I'm in where I can do that. And, and I'd really like to think that we're kind of living in a time where there, there is a paradigm shift around production. And the pandemic, I think, has sped it up. But I think there's also this confluence of all these companies like Neural DSP and you know, Toontrack and ourselves and all the other kind of companies that have been cropping up and offering these amazing tools where I feel like for me at least, and I think lots of other people the same way, in the metal community, we've kind of been living this collective <laughs> like trauma of trying to figure out how to get things to sound like those golden era metal productions in the 2000s where it felt so distant and impossible to achieve those tones. And there's just so much kind of mythology and mystique around all of it. And, you know, you could 
you could buy a 5150 and a, and a Mesa cab and a guitar with active pickups and a 57 and mic it up and it still didn't sound like, no. you know, it's Neve or Richardson or whatever. And, and for me, like, that just drives me up the wall. I, I, I hate when I have all of the constituent parts and the result isn't coming out right, you know. It's like the, the scientist in me feels like there should be a scientific method that gives you a defined result. And when you follow the steps and it doesn't work, I'm just like, what? What's going on here? And I kind of, I end up getting really obsessively down that that rabbit hole. And I feel like I'm not the only one, you know? I think there's a lot of us that came up on the sneak board that were just trying to figure out why does our shit not sound right? <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. I mean, that used to drive me insane. But, but you see, I feel like we're now at the point where it's like, okay, cool. We can actually breathe a sigh of relief. You know, I, I'm really proud of the... GGD product we put out last year that was like all these amazing sounding Mesa Boogie cabinets with vintage 30s that actually do sound like those those classic recordings and it took you know a huge amount of detective work to figure out that it's just about having the right era of speaker and whatnot we can talk about that if you want but it's like actually now people at home can make metal recordings that sound amazing and while we've had great software for you know well over a decade I think it's now really at the point where the core raw sounds that people can access at home uh, on the level of really high budget productions. It has definitely turned the corner. It really has, isn't it? And whereas in other genres, I feel like they've maybe been there sooner because there's less of this kind of specific vision of sound that everyone's trying to achieve. It's a bit more experimental. Within metal, it's always kind of rooted in these these sounds that we've heard for for quite a few years and, and want to hear on our own productions. And I'm really excited to see what happens next because I think... In some way, we're going to transcend all of that as a as a genre in all of its subgenres, and I'm interested to see. Sorry, this is a really rambling answer. I guess I'm uh, just got lots no, going around in my head. No, it's <laughs> an interesting topic. I think about it too. Well, the thing that I have like come to the conclusion of, though, because I agree with everything you're saying, but I have this unique vantage point uh, that we're like on year seven now of Nail the Mix, where we've done the mix competition monthly. So that's thousands and thousands and thousands of mixes that we've heard. And what I'm noticing is if you compare the mix poll mixes now versus the ones when we started in 2015, it's night and day. They're so much better now. It's crazy how much better they are. And I think it's everything. It's the technology is better, the education like what we've been doing has been out there long enough. Like there's all those things. The community is bigger. Like there's just so many things going on at the same time, allowing for the bar to be raised. However, I'm still hearing great stuff as infrequently as before. So what I'm hearing is that the median line is higher. Uh, so just your everyday stuff is just better than it ever has been. And so it's way easier to get to that B plus level. It's way easier to get out of the suck at everything phase. Like you don't, people don't have to remain in that sucking phase for very long. Um, they can get to a competent phase pretty quickly, but still truly great stuff, at least from what I'm hearing like it's still pretty rare and so that gives me hope it just gives me hope in that not that like not in a like a people aren't great sort of way a, more like in a it's still special i guess it's still it's still special doing something truly great 
it still stands out. And the reason I'm saying that is just because I think everybody has recognized that the bar is up and that it is way easier to get decent or good sounding results. And I think that some people have been very depressed about it even or scared about it because there's some, you know, there's some tough questions you got to ask. Like, well, if it's, if as a mixer or producer, you would be dumb to not ask yourself, well, what's my place in the world then? Am I necessary? Because back in the day, it was impossible for people to get even okay sounds on their own. It wasn't possible to get anything but total garbage on your own. So it's gone from that to, uh, you know, it's pretty, not easy, but it's pretty possible to get decent sounding stuff on your own. So what's a producer's role in it? And the thing I'm noticing though is still, like I said, the great stuff is still rare. And so I feel like there's always going to be, there's always going to be a place for the truly exceptional. And I think that that's what's going to end up guiding wherever we go next. Well, I think that's great. Personally, I agree. And it's it's cool to have your insight too. But I think... You know what? What I hope is with this kind of collective trauma thing I was referring to, kind of being resolved to an extent. It's like cool. Now we can actually crack on with putting the focus on what's interesting and what's characterful. And I put a question out on my my Instagram a couple of months ago now that got loads of responses because I'm genuinely very very interested in this. Which is like, okay, if everyone's stuff sounds good like you're describing, what defines quality? You know what I mean? What is a high quality production? Because it used to kind of be like, like you say, like everything was rubbish <laughs> yeah. until you got to a certain level. And it was like, if everything sounded good, that was kind of like, cool, that's high quality. Now, even people in their bedrooms doing like their first EP can have something that sounds way better than loads of stuff that was out on labels, you know, 15 years ago. So what is it that's quality in a high budget production? Because it's no longer just the sounds. And I think for me, the answer is, you know, character and uniqueness. And, you know, that you can only really achieve that with people that are going the extra mile, that are doing things in an interesting way, that are perhaps spending the time which is necessary to kind of follow rabbit holes and try different things and experiment. And I think that's really exciting. I think that's Perhaps now from this place, we can go to a point where top level bands are putting out more interesting sounding records and we get more diversity again and more appreciation of of every kind of production, whether it is the really sample replaced, super gridded stuff, which suits some styles, or whether it's, you know, kind of modern music, modern metal music being produced with kind of a more organic feel. Uh, with more live recording or more room sounds or less sample replacement. And and there's always been plenty of that going on, but it's kind of been more on the fringes. And and it's kind of cool to hear in some ways some of those things coming back into the the kind of, or coming towards the modern metal genres and being embraced as as wholeheartedly as like the the really heavy, heavy edited kind of sound. Well, the thing is that these tools don't give you your ideas, right? That's, that's, they're just tools. Um, they're better than ever, but they're just tools. It's still down to the people to have the, you know, that divine inspiration to do something interesting and cool with them. And that takes time and experience, doesn't it really? Or, or it just takes like an absolute maverick vision. You know, some people just are that way. And maybe now, maybe they're also the kinds of minds that wouldn't sit down and really, you know, be studious about 
proper engineering technique and now they kind of got access to great sounds it's like great we get to hear their creative genius sounding great (laughs) yeah it but it makes me wonder you know production like bohemian rhapsody something like that back in the day what would it be like now with the current technology other than sounding crisper of course and all that how different would it be i don't know I don't know. It's hard to know how much of that creativity was born out of limitation or restricted by the limitations of the time. Like how much crazier, yeah, would their vision have been if they had access to these tools? Like, I don't know at all. Yeah, how much crazier can it get? (laughs) (laughs) It is pretty crazy, isn't it? (laughs) Like some of those old productions. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, that I think of stuff like that because the 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 music itself by any standard is still crazy mm. back then. And they figured out how to basically duct tape the technology together to get it across. So wh- I just wonder, like, would the difference now be that they would just have an easier time in the studio, basically, with the same basic vision? Yeah. Or would it be totally different? There's no doubt that they are slash were, you know, a very visionary group of people. So I'm, I'm sure... Well, yeah, I just don't know. It's so open-ended. It's, so it's, o- it's open-ended, but when I, when you think of the visionary artists mm. of our time period or the past 15 years or something, when you think, I don't know, like a muse or something like that, like I could imagine some of the more visionary artists of now existing in that old time period too yeah. uh, and still putting out great stuff regardless of the technology. Yeah. To me, that's kind of the... It's kind of the thread, I guess, that is independent of technology is how good are the ideas and how much do these ideas stand on their own outside of the medium that they're presented in? And the stronger they are, I think, I think, well, that's when you start to enter into the timeless uh, category. And with that timeless category, I think that that's where technology stops mattering it matters a lot more for stuff that is like not in that timeless category where you need the tools of the day to just be able to pull it off and you can't pull it off without the tools of the day yeah i do get what you mean i do get what you mean and and i do wonder how different metal production is going to sound like 10 years from now yeah in some way how much better can it get i mean i'm not saying that i don't believe it can possibly get better but it's just difficult to imagine you know like the frequency range that we're using is so much expanded compared to 10 15 years ago that you know the the big thing for me is how much less harsh everything is and i I do think soothe has a lot to oh yeah for sure it's a paradigm shift for sure but even without that you know it's just having more EQ bands and stuff and, and, and people's general, you know, hearing smoother sounding productions, I think then informs other people's productions to be smoother as well. So I think there's a general kind of move towards that. But, but you know, what's interesting is back in like 2008, seven, I remember hanging out with Sukov like when around when he was doing the bury your dead productions. And those had just some of the biggest guitar tone at that time and they just they just sounded monstrous and I remember I don't remember if he said it or I said it or someone else said it somebody said that it's like car stereo test music because and because of how big it sounded and at the time we felt like how can it get bigger sounding than this like how can you use more frequencies like how like it was hard to imagine and but yet here we are and stuff sounds bigger so I, I wonder if it's the same sort of thing that just we're 
we are living within the constraints we're living in. So it's hard to see how much bigger things can get. Yeah, I agree. But how can they not get bigger? That's what that's what they do. Yeah, I don't know. So tell me this. Well, firstly, an observation, you know, in my work, I've seen for sure the amount of tracks that are being added to metal music. And I, I mean, like synths and strings and effects it seems to only be going up or only becoming more dominant, supplementing that kind of core band of, you know, guitar, bass, drums, vocals. So, you know, I think that's one way that things can get bigger. And then the more you try and cram into the production, I start to wonder, and I would like your opinion on this, how much do you see things like Atmos being the future for metal specifically? Good question. Okay, so did you by any chance watch the Atmos Nail the Mix we just did? No, I didn't. Okay, so... Well, we just did one with Carson and Grant for the Era Mix. Dolby actually got involved with it and did a presentation. Basically, it was a two-day Nail the Mix, or day one was the regular stereo mix, just standard Nail the Mix. Day two was the Dolby Day, where Dolby basically did an hour and a half explaining how it works and um, just showing everybody and then Carson and Grant did a Dolby version of the era mix and what I noticed when the dude from Dolby was doing AB comparisons and also Carson Grant AB'd between the uh the stereo version and then their Dolby version the difference is not subtle like the difference in how big it sounds is it's pretty it's pretty extreme it sounds way bigger with the Dolby uh, Atmos mix. Now there's, you know, there's problems and it's got to be figured out and there's phase and all, you know, there's, it's not a perfect technology and like, it's still very much in its wild west period where there's no like set standard yet. People are still figuring things out, but when done well, it sounds way bigger. And the thing about it too, is that it doesn't require this massive expensive setup it's not just for rich people the way that surround sound used to be. You don't need, what is it, 7.1.4. All you need are AirPods. You can use, there's sound bars that do Dolby. Like, it's not, it's not some crazy thing. So the fact that it's so accessible, I think that is what makes it seem like maybe it's not like the future of music, like people are saying, but I also don't think that it's going to be what surround sound was, which is just for DVDs and just for like the odd band here and there and just for like rich people's movie rooms. Um, I think that you're going to see a lot more of it. And especially people are working very hard right now to establish a standard for it. That'll happen pretty soon. And I think once that happens, once you start seeing it in cars, it's already... I believe that in China, there's already cars with it. Like once that becomes the norm, I think that that's going to that's going to change things. Also, because everyone can check it out, artists are going to hear the difference and they're going to want it. It's the same way that the loudness wars were artists and labels hearing other people's work and saying, "Well." We have to be louder. I think people are going to hear the Dolby version of people's mixes and say, oh, our stereo mix sounds puny compared to that. I think that that's, that's where it has to go because the technology is accessible. If it was inaccessible, like only for these movie theaters or, you know, 
rich people, then maybe that would be one thing. But since everybody can do it, that's that's a whole other thing, I think. What do you think? I'm undecided, really. I think there's certain subgenres of metal that maybe would benefit from having more space. <laughs> you know? But then I can't really imagine hardcore bands with... Oh, no, no, you know, of course. Not everyone. <laughs> But like, for example, I guess I could ask you, I know you're working on the Darth record at the moment and I know that's very production heavy. Would mm-hmm. you, are you contemplating having an Atmos mix done of that record? Have you thought about that? Uh, I didn't think about it until we did that Nail the Mix. Um, and then it definitely crossed my mind. It's one of those things, though, where just because of the unique situation of Darth coming back after so long, I, I need to make sure that uh, I'm not wasting my time. So we put the music out and make sure that it's not like a sad trombone and that nobody cares. But if people do care and it makes sense to keep going, then absolutely, for sure. Because yeah. now that I've heard what it can do, I like it wouldn't make sense to me not to do it, especially because Doc is so layered. For me, like, you know, I've always written stuff with like 17 guitars and synths and like just counter melodies and just tons of shit going on at all times uh, that's supposed to work together. But still, sometimes a stereo mix is limiting. I personally never felt like they were bad arrangements. I felt like the medium was limited. Like with orchestral music, it always worked. Uh, it should work with this too, but there's something about the stereo metal mix that it made it not possible to really get across properly. So now that I've heard what Dolby can do, I'm like, okay, this is actually, this seems like the answer to getting my music heard properly. So yes, actually, I have thought about that. It needs to make sense, but let's just say that it does make sense and people like the new stuff, then yeah, most likely, yes. Yeah. Um, I think it does make sense. I mean, it's more places to put things, right? That's the problem. (laughs) It's like, where do you put it in stereo? But it's going to be interesting. And I think that maybe that's going to be another kind of um, division between like the big leagues and the people doing stuff at home. I know obviously consumers can access Dolby very easily, but to have like a great monitoring situation with that many speakers is definitely going to be something limited to only people with some some serious budget. And part of me wonders... I know it's it is really impressive. I feel like it is somewhere now for high end studios to invest a lot of money that they feel is going to kind of give them that edge again. Um, so I wonder, you know, it feels like there's quite a lot of movement happening for that reason. But I mean, plus I think that for other genres and other styles and soundtracks and things like that, I think it's a no brainer that that's going to become the new thing. Just as VR is likely to become the dominant force in visual. Uh, media. It's one of those things that until you've actually heard it done right or with VR experience the real thing, you might not realize just how good this stuff is. Like I was super skeptical about VR till I checked it out because I remember VR from when I was a kid being a joke. But then I checked it out, the you know, modern VR and I was like, oh, okay, we are living in the future. And I felt the same way when I heard the Dolby stuff. It was like, okay. This is actually great. This is not this is not bullshit at all. Yeah, well that's great. It's cool to have that insight. And I do wonder how much harder it's going to make things for people getting into the industry, you know, for I, I think obviously you can you can take a stereo mix and pan some stuff around and kind of enjoy the extra space of Atmos, but I think it'll be interesting to see how many people have the creative vision to intentionally utilize that technology within their creative vision at the start of the process. 
within metal, if that makes sense. Well, I think that that's actually what's going to be required. So on the Dolby site, they have these case studies uh, of artists that created productions with Atmos in mind. And I actually, I think that that's what's, that's going to be the best case scenario. Kind of like, you know, with vinyl and stuff, the best sounding records on vinyl are the ones that were created with vinyl in mind. You know, something is always better when the final, it's final medium is taken into consideration. Like watching a Chris Nolan movie at an IMAX theater is the best way because it's shot a certain way to be presented like that. Like it's still good at home, but it's a whole other experience. It was created for that experience. I think once metal bands start arranging their songs and the producers start approaching from the ground up with Atmos in mind, that's going to be when it really like comes into its own, I think. Yeah, I think so too. You know what it is within metal is apart from finding more space for things, and that is a big one, it's difficult to see like what problems it solves. Like it's very cool, but when something's, you know, for something to get adopted in the mainstream, that's a new technology, it kind of needs to solve an existing problem. And I can see in soundtrack music and electronic music, all sorts of other styles of music, it's super cool to have such a sense of space. Um... I don't know. I don't know. It'll be interesting to listen back to this conversation in a few years' time and see how <laughs> how things are developed. Well, the thing is, metal, I think that even though there's more and more tracks in a lot of it, metal still comes down to two guitars, bass, drums, vocals. Like, at its core, that's really what it is. Yeah. And that really hasn't changed uh, that ever. That It's still that same basic format. And yeah, some bands dress it up more, but I do think that that's more the exception. And we're, you know, like you and I, like we're in this bubble of being around like crazy musicians and like insane artists, but I don't think that that's the norm. Uh, I think that it's a very, like when those are who, when that's who you're surrounded by, it's easy to believe that that's what everyone's doing, but it's not. (laughs) And uh, I think that like this crazier kind of music, it's not the norm. I think the norm is the more simple, straight ahead, stripped down um, arrangement type metal that's borderline that's more on the border with like hard rock or something and with that it is hard to see like exactly what problem the atmos thing solves besides just the issue of how do you make it sound bigger which is something that like any radio band wants right like any hard rock or radio metal band like they always want to sound bigger like that's so that is one way to do that. So it does solve that problem. Like even though they don't have eight million things going on at the same time, they still do want to sound as big as possible. It makes sense. And I mean, I for me, I forget if we spoke about this last time, but for me, like the sound, the emotions that metal invokes, uh, it's very much like a visceral thing. For me, I, I liken it to going on a roller coaster, where it's like you get to experience a little bit of what it would be like to be in like a, an out of control <laughs> vehicle or something yep. like that. Um, and I think, you know, metal production. Funny you put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, or, you know, like skydiving or something mm-hmm. instead of actually jumping off a building. It's like you get to experience that thrill that would normally end in death. <laughs> Whereas it's like, yeah. within metal, it's like you're trying to expose yourself to these sounds which you perceive as being 
just completely overwhelming, don't you? I mean, that, that's how it is for me. And that's what draws me to metal is like the feeling I get of excitement and like mm -hmm. this sound, like being close to like a volcano erupting, yet you're not actually being covered in lava. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like just enough distance away from that thing that you get to experience it without experiencing any kind of discomfort. And I know some metal people would really take offense to that. I know some people that like the raw production style would say, well, it's supposed to be angry and harsh and unpleasant for, because the music's designed with rage and, and anger in mind. But for me, it's not so much that. It is about like, you know, softening transients and stuff. So that it's not like drilling into your ears. It's, it's yep. like making it, you know, making it so that you can actually take it all in at once without being knocked back by <laughs> by the, by the volume or the harshness so you know there, there is to me a sense that more immersion in the sound could heighten that experience you know you could make it absolutely even bigger and, and and closer to being overwhelming without actually reaching that point and, and that's exciting but that that's exactly it actually that's what i see the benefit as now that i've experienced it like that's totally where i see it headed Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. Can we talk about the uh, key monitors? Sure thing. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I don't know much about them. I just know that it's not a typical thing. It, like no. you hear a lot about Amphions, you hear a lot about Genelex, you know, your yeah, which are great monitors, but like you don't really hear much about keys, and uh, it's because they're mostly used by audiophiles and like hi-fi listening type situations, not necessarily studio monitors. So I'm curious why you're using them and 
yeah, more than anything, why? Yeah, why are sure. you using that and not regular studio monitors? Yeah, it's a good question, and and it is interesting because they kind of market the same the same product to both audiophiles and studio people. They, they but they literally have them as like two separate pages on their website, but it's the same speakers. Um, so as I mentioned, we moved moved house, and I kind of had the opportunity to decide how I wanted my my home studio to be. I knew I didn't want to have a separate facility. I really love working from home. I love being able to just walk into a room and sit down and work and, and leave again and spend some time with my wife or whatever. I want to take the dog for a walk. So for me, I decided actually it's time to kind of go all in on the minimal thing for me. You know, that's always been the way I've done things. And that kind of came up from having to work on a laptop and not having a studio. And I kind of realize, you know, I'm, I'm probably never going to own a traditional studio and it's probably not the greatest investment now to go down that route. So I thought, well, the one thing which I want to make sure I have in my home studio is just the best possible listening um, experience. Because it's clear to me anyway, that the tools we have now that you can access within your within your computer are more than good enough to do top level work. And really, the only limitation is how well you can hear what you're doing. So I had in mind that I was going to go down the route of getting some really high end analog monitors like ATCs or PMCs, you know, end game analog monitors that you know really are, are the kind of top end studio staple stuff. But I'd seen a few reviews of these key monitors that were you know, just people being absolutely blown away by blown away by them, and, and not necessarily YouTube people, but people in magazines. The Sound on Sound guys talked about how they were the best kind of near field monitors that ever heard. And to be honest, I dislike how they look. I'm looking at them now, and I'm, and and they, I had to really like how they sounded because I kind of <laughs> I wasn't sold on the, on the whole aesthetic. But they have a few things that I really really like. As you can see, I'm not in a very big room. I'm, I'm in a room that's probably close to the kind of worst possible dimensions for monitoring. It's it's got. A hell of a lot of treatment in it um but the thing these monitors do is they kind of use fancy dsp and digital stuff which i kind of didn't want to get into but to cancel out the sounds around the the sides and back of the monitor so basically you get rid of a lot of the reflections that you would normally get from the back so in many ways it makes the room far far more doable whereas with you know analog monitors probably if i wanted to achieve this kind of listening situation i'd need to properly acoustically design this room and probably want someone with bigger dimensions and never be quite sure these just give me i mean put it this way i've i haven't i can't remember the last time i enjoyed listening to music as much as on these and I, wow. i'm not endorsed by them i don't have any kind of affiliation with them but for me it is kind of like that difference when you hear atmos or surround sound because everything is so so clear and coherent and the transient response is so so aligned you know it is literally aligned by the by the dsp inside that it's like there's a sense of depth that i've, I've never experienced before like you can hear the tiny quiet things in the background at the same time as the loud things at the front so it kind of feels like you're looking into the mix they don't have a sub so but i've still got more low-end extension than i had with my old setup with a sub as well so for me it solves a lot of problems with the room but then on top of that, for me, the sound is just, for me, it's just 100% trustable. And it's just so enjoyable to listen to. So my concern was whether or not it was just going to be way too annoying to mix on, like if they'd be way too finicky. But actually, I just found that it was like, no, you just hear what you need to do and you do it and job's done. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what's supposed to happen? Exactly, yeah. I feel like you're not supposed to fight your monitors. No, they're just supposed to tell you what's going on, really, aren't they? And 
I think the only thing which I found with them is the clarity is such that I tend not to need to push volumes on things to make them audible. Things like a lead vocal or a, a guitar solo. It's like I can hear it perfectly well when it's a little bit more tucked into the mix. So I kind of learned to just automatically bump the fader up another dB or so on those things before printing a mix down because I know that other people's systems don't translate as clearly and you know their room their speakers are going to kind of wash out the middle of the mix that bit more to where they need a bit of extra volume there but it's, it's been amazing for me and i've you know i found i've used less eq probably on my, my mixes currently and because of the way you can hear the transients it's like you can kind of massage how close and far away things are with more kind of compression or just balancing rather than using eq to make things cut through and that's been that's been really exciting and really enjoyable it's cool that you did that just because i think um you know, people are, are afraid to go off the beaten path with what they listen to. And I really think that what matters most in monitoring is, can you hear what you're trying to hear? And are you able to listen for long periods of time? Like those two things mattered, I think, more than anything. Like, how long can you go for? If you're getting fatigued within two hours, that's probably not a good thing. And if you're not hearing what you need to hear and it's not translating properly, that's a problem too. But since everybody's hearing is different, just because something works for somebody does not mean that it's going to work for anybody else. I think it's great for people to hear, you know, someone that they respect going off the beaten path. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, it was, um, I mean, it, it was a risk. To be honest, I, I saw a really good deal on some B stock, like kind of uh, X demo ones um, come up. And that's, I went and I bought them knowing that I could probably sell them on for what I paid. So, I mean, they're very expensive, but I kind of decided to order them in just to try. Like I say, they weren't my first choice, but once I heard them, I was just like, yeah, this this is me set. Like, I don't need to worry about this now. That's that's done. And, you know, before I was using Sonarworks, which I think is amazing as a tool, especially for people at, at home, but you, you're still limited by what's coming out of your speakers. You know, if your speakers aren't able to give you that transient information, Sonarworks isn't going to fix that. And if your room is clouding up certain things, it can go a long way, but it's, it's never going to make things come out of your speakers that your speakers can't produce, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make perfect sense. I think that Sonarworks is probably one of the uh, one of the best things that's ever been invented or recently. <laughs> when yeah. I think of like uh, things that have been invented recently that have made a huge difference, we were just talking about Soothe. I think Sonarworks is one of those things as far as tools that really do make life easier for people. I do think that's one of them. Yeah, I agree. I'm struggling to think of more products than that. Like what? Than Soothe and, and Sonarworks that have come out in the last five to 10 years that have really changed the game. Can you think of others? The Kemper. Yeah, I suppose so. Evertune. Mm, yeah. In terms of like coming out with something that's like a completely new idea. Because I mean, I feel like, well, I guess the Kemper did come out with the profiling. That was a major one. Yeah. But no, I, I agree. I think Sonarworks has made production possible for so many people, including myself for, for a long time, unless, you know, without being in an amazing studio. And the number of times I've been in great studios and ended up using Sonarworks in there because I wasn't confident in the monitoring and then hearing the difference and being like, yeah, I really need this. <laughs> you know, it's like a proper acoustic space, but the clarity that you get in the middle of your mix, especially when, when it sorts out the timeline between your speakers and kind of figures out where stuff's washing around in the room is, is pretty amazing. Yeah, it, man, I'm still trying to think of <laughs> other inventions. Like I'm still on that thought. It's like, yeah. I mean, hmm. certainly within the software world, don't get me wrong, there's amazing software out there, but ones where it's like you just know that there's productions happening that could not have happened without it. It's difficult to think. It's more that like everything that already was invented is just getting better. Hmm. There's that. So like 
with amp sims, for instance, it's not that amp sims were invented in the past 10 years. It's just they got really good in the past 10 years. Yeah. And the, they're a major game changer. So really in the past five years, they've gotten really good. I think that that's more it, is that it's less that the number of new things, but more how much of things that already existed have improved. Have you, um, have you messed around with Spiff a lot, the other Oak Sound? I haven't, but I have been meaning to. Have you? Yeah, I really like it. And every time I use it, I think I should be using this more frequently than I am. <laughs> like, and whenever I use it, it really solves a problem, as we were describing before, in a way that no other tool does for me. I didn't. It took me ages to get what it is until I realized it's it's a you know a frequency dependent transient designer. So you can kind of choose where it's acting, but that it's kind of utilizing that same technology as Soothe, where it's got like I forget how many bands under the hood. So it's able to kind of really just affect the frequencies that are there in the like enhance the frequencies that are there rather than doing like a global shelf kind of thing. If that makes sense, maybe I'm not describing it very well. But like if you use it as a transient designer on a snare drum it actually makes it sound like it's being hit harder i think not 100 percent well but if you take like you know i do lots of drum sampling if you take one yep. one drum hit and compare it to the next level up and then that lower drum hit with spiff on it it does a pretty good job if you set it right at approximating the in-between as in it actually changes the frequency response as well as the transient kind of level I'm, that sounds kind of magical. It is. It is. I mean, yeah, that's that sounds like magic. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to be able to describe what it does better, or for them to describe what it does better, because it took me ages to like figure it out and start applying it. So you know what that sounds like to me? Okay, so that sounds to me like this unit I had, JCF Audio. This dude is a genius, and he makes these hardware pieces that are kind of magical. Okay, called the AD8, and it's a converter. And it has this technology in it that he invented called PEP. It stands for Power Equalization Processing. And when you put PEP on, it does this weird thing that's it's magic. It's hard to explain because it like it like changes how the EQ and the transient. I don't know how to explain it. So right. how they fall over time, but not okay. So like suddenly drums will feel like they're hitting harder and more in the pocket it's but you know it's subtle of course but like i couldn't figure out what it was what it was doing it sounds to me like spiff is like one of those things it does something kind of like that where it's like affecting the frequency response to some degree it's affecting the transient to some degree and there's like some magical formula going on that makes things sound just more musical or something. Hard to explain. Yeah. Well, I hadn't heard about, about that, that 88. I'll have to look into it. I think if you think about what Soothe does, where it's able to kind of generate these dynamic notches, imagine that you can boost or cut those same frequencies, but just in the transient portion of the signal. Yep. Just in the band that you want. That's cool. So it's like, you know, it is kind of dependent on the frequency content of what you're boosting rather than just this kind of global EQ boost, which you see in some multiband transient designers, which are really cool tools. But I don't know, give, give it a try. You can do all sorts of cool things. You know, you can make like a, a shallow snare drum sound like it's two inches deeper by kind of focusing more wallop in that kind of low mid area. And you kind of, re, especially with drums, you can just kind of really revoice things Man. In, in a cool way that I, haven't, that I haven't found elsewhere. I love 
intelligent plugins. Me too. Me too. I hate automation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I remember on your Nail the Mix, uh, you were using Vocal Rider. Yeah, that's true, which I don't think I've actually used since, which is interesting. But You haven't used it since? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like... That's funny, because <laughs> <laughs> so many people probably start using it as a result. <laughs> really? That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, that, that was a problem-solving device. Uh, like like tool in, in that situation. But I think what it is is that so many of these automated plugins and things are getting smarter and better. And, you know, I think automation is really important. Don't get me wrong. I, I, global automation, like riding things so you get bigger impacts and dynamic shifts on a macro level is cool. But trying to fix issues on a micro level using a manual automation thing just always feels like a very blunt tool or just for me mm-hmm. generates so much doubt as to whether you're actually compensating correctly or overcompensating or undercompensating, especially if you're having to go through and, you know, level a vocal word by word or consonant by consonant, yeah, which I have done. I agree. It's just like the, the world of doubt that open that you're open to as a mixer there and how much it takes you away from the actual mixing process. Yeah, and then there's like there's like trends, right? So since you're doing stuff in micro, like word by word or syllable by syllable, like you might not realize that you're gradually just making the vocal louder <laughs> over time because yeah. you're just going word by word. So you're listening to how one word works with the one before it. And you're, it, it's like very easy to lose the big picture. Like, and that world of doubt sucks. I, really I definitely think that the intelligent plugins that really zero in on these issues are, that's something that really is a game changer. I agree. I think, for example, FabFilter uh, Pro-Q3, being able to make any band dynamic. Amazing. is so good. And I, I used to use multi-band uh, compressors a lot more in like kind of the year before Pro-Q3 came out. I remember using that a lot on Devon Townsend stuff and periphery stuff to make it so that things maintained a certain level of fullness rather than kind of having to make a, a just a static cut into something or split a track you know the classic one for me is like strings on top of a metal mix like you always have to cut mid-range and low end and then you get to a break when the strings are isolated and suddenly they sound rubbish so you kind of have to put it all back in again um, or you know split have like a, a separate channel of strings that's got a different eq on it just for those moments and um I mean, that's fine, but these dynamic tools, I think, do so much of a better job, and especially where you can sidechain from other things. And um, I've, I've no doubt that increases the listenability of things. Golfos too. You ever mess around with that? Yes. Awesome. Yeah. That's that's more subtle, I think, but it is it is great. Yeah. I don't know if I could say it's like a paradigm change in the same way as some of those other tools. But, but yeah, I mean, I think doing things with confidence, being able to do things with confidence, you know, we were talking about the new monitors, all these tools. I think that really helps in any creative endeavor you know to be able to do things and not second guess yourself and not doubt and that also comes with experience with with anything you're doing mm-hmm. and i think that experience leading to you being able to do things with intention see the result that you expect and move on i think that's one of the best things that comes with time actually the more you do something what do you think yes i mean i'm noticing that actually with the music i'm making now it's not that i'm less crazy but uh when writing it but I am way less doubtful and I'm much quicker to know when something's good or bad. And so it's way easier for me to just say no on an idea or no, yes, this idea is worth pursuing. Whereas um, 
in the past, I definitely more, I guess, confidence issues with it. Like I second guessed myself a lot more. So I'm, I feel like just knowing what's good and having confidence in that or knowing what your tools do and having confidence that they work, just it makes all the difference in the world because you have to be able to make bold choices. I think that uh, when creating art, whether it's a mix or writing a song, if you're in your own head worried about something not working, not is it not is it good enough, not can we make it better, but like is this even working? Like too much of that will take you out of that creative headspace, I think. Well, and it will kill that momentum. I think almost any of any of that will do that. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And it's funny because I was talking to I was talking to Ben in the pre-interview about this kind of little motto that I've been having in my head for, for the last year or so, which is like this incredibly, incredibly bland sounding phrase, which is uh, repetition leads to predictability, which yep. I was thinking about practice makes perfect, the saying. And I was thinking how vague that really is when you drill down. You know, it's, for me, yeah, it's kind of... what does it even mean? Yeah, like what is practicing and what is perfect? Ultimately, you know, maybe in the Victorian era school system, it makes sense. Or, you know, in some kind of training someone to do something in a very robotic way, maybe that makes sense. But in any broader sense, I, I, that's kind of what I build it down to. It's like, okay, what, what are you practicing? What are you doing when you're practicing? You're repeating something. You might not be actually repeating what you think you're repeating. You might be repeating an error over and over again or repeating something that's not training you in, in what you're trying to train, but you're repeating something. And what happens after you do it a lot is you're able to kind of predict the outcome or achieve a predictable outcome more consistently or more predictable outcome. What I heard is people start saying perfect practice makes perfect. Sure. Which is basically the same thing you're saying. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's, I think it's basically something which underpins... Almost everything we do, and what I like about that phrase is how neutral it is. Like predictability can be a good thing or a bad thing. You know, predictability in the context of your life. I'm like maybe you don't want to have a completely predictable day every day of the year, every year of your life. You know, maybe that's going to be boring, and, and you therefore can think, okay, what can I not repeat so that where can I make changes so that I get unpredictable results in a way that's going to satisfy my curiosity for life. And on the other end, when you go into a production. If you haven't repeated things and you don't know predictably what's going to happen, if you reach for an EQ and boost, you know, any given frequency on this source sound, you are going to be risking ending up with an unpredictable result, which again, might be fine in the context, but in the context of, you know, a metal producer or a producer working with a client who needs to get something done on time, you need to know exactly what's going to happen within a certain degree of accuracy when you make anyone move, because that's... That's how you get from A to B in a production is making lots and lots of tiny decisions and you can't be second guessing all of them. You know, yeah. if I think about like an amazing chef could come into your kitchen with your equipment and with your ingredients, cook up a really great dish, maybe not Michelin star dish, but you know, they would just know exactly how finely to chop things, exactly which tools to use, how much heat to apply for how long, when to combine things, the order to do things. And you could look at the recipe that, you know, you could write down notes of what they did. But there wouldn't be any magic in there. You know, you wouldn't be able to look at any one step, probably, and be like, oh my God, this is that one thing he did that led... This is the thing. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's the same as Nail the Mix, right? Somebody can copy down snare EQ settings that uh, an experienced producer used on something. 
And there's probably not very much magic in there. You know, most people are probably boosting a bit of low end, cutting a bit of cardboardy mids and boosting some top end and doing some, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's not like there's a difference of a few hertz in where you boost in the top end that's going to suddenly... Nope. It's all the little things put together. Exactly. And the only way you can do that is, is kind of EQing things a lot. <laughs> yeah. And you know, what's interesting too is with the predictability, that also, it leads to a confidence not just in knowing something's going to work and making confident decisions, but it also leads to confidence in knowing when something is wrong, which is just as important, I think. Uh, so being able to like cut an idea off or stop going down a certain path quickly, uh, you need to be confident enough to say, no, that's a bad path. And I think that through lots of repetition and predictability, it's a lot easier to know, um, well, I've done this a thousand times. And I know that when I do this, that's what happens. And that's not what we want. Yep. So we're not going to do this thing. I think that's huge. And I mean, that's something very much you can apply to your personal life too. You know, we all have patterns of behavior that maybe aren't serving us super well or that lead us to places that we then regret later, you know, um, in you know our own personal lives or in relationships to others. And if you can recognize the things that you're doing the same every time that's leading you down that path and decide, you know, kind of figure out where the earliest possible point that you can introduce a change is so that you kind of get a different cascade of scenarios, um, you can over time start to avoid some traps that you know that you can fall into. Um, but yeah, the same, I guess it's life experience. It's, it's, it's life at the end of the day. You know, you learn to read people, you learn, you learn to know what's good for you in any given situation. You need to learn what you need to prioritize. It's all because you probably messed up loads of times. You've repeated the scenario over and over again and kind of the things which work carry on through. So in the future, you can make the right decisions when they come up quicker and just kind of sail through things a little bit easier. That's why when you're younger and uh, you don't have kids or a family... <laughs> mortgage and all that, that's when you should be putting in those 12-hour days practicing. Sure. Because, uh, you know, like what we're talking about, getting to that point is only really possible through the repetition. Like at, at some point, you have to put in those hours. And I think I think the 10,000 hours thing is a total myth. It's uh, it's more like 30,000 hours or something. It's, it's way more than 10,000 hours. So I think at some point, People do need to put those hours in on that repetition and just do the just do the reps. Same, you know, if you're learning an instrument, like, I mean, if you want to get good, you are going to have to put your time in with the basics, you know, with the metronome and just do the thing over and over and over and over again. I think, I think it's important to repeat the right things, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And repeat them a lot. Yeah. And, you know, if I think about what you guys offer with Nail the Mix, I think... Well, if I reflect on two sides, if I look at my own personal development in what I do as a mixer or a product designer or a guitarist or a bassist, or I look at what you're offering in Nail the Mix, I think a common thread is repeating things on my own time, or you're offering the ability to people to repeat things in their own time. If you imagine 20 years ago, you get a job to work as an assistant in a studio and you want to become a metal producer one day, you're a fan of metal you get to work on one metal band every six months or something that just happens to come in, you know, into the studio. You don't get to flex your chops. You don't get to practice that stuff. It's going to take God knows how many hours of working in that studio before you'd be able to apply 
any of your knowledge to successfully create a good sounding metal recording. Whereas now with Nail the Mix, people can sit at their own home and work on track after track after track from different sources and put in less than 10,000 hours on the specific thing that they're trying to get better at and kind of get this very condensed learning experience. And I think that's super important. You know, it's actually a really good point. I've talked about this a lot is uh, if you're going for an internship, say, with a really with a producer that you really look up to, say you learn something from them or they do something that you want to adopt you have a limited amount of times that you can ask them to repeat themselves. If uh, if you didn't catch something, you know, depending on who it is, you can ask them again. But there's a limit to how many times you can get the same information out of somebody. So in person, you have to be able to just get it pretty much the first time and uh, and then somehow know it, which some people do. Some people are that quick. I think that that's why these high-level producers go through interns and assistants so quickly is because that environment is not suited for most people and how they learn. Most people need the repetition. And so the, you know, learning on your own time and being able to rewind, watch again, practice some more, rewind, watch again, practice some more. That's uh, that's crucial. It's crucial. Um most people can't just learn things the first time under the pressure of a major label situation and producer and then just suddenly know how to do it right from then on forward. That's And not being able to just do that shouldn't be why you don't have a future in this. Like, I think most people can't just pick things up that quickly. Most people do have to do that extra work on their own, and you just have to figure out how to do that extra work on your own. Um, so the, I think the online learning does provide that. It's a, I think that is a big difference between now and even 10 years ago, you know? Yeah. That's one of the reasons people are getting better is they can do this stuff. Same with learning an instrument. I think it's really important with anything you're doing to also ask yourself the question, why? Like why, not why are you doing it, but why are you getting the result that you're getting? Because even though there's such a base of information out there on the internet, it's so easy to get answers that don't really apply to you. And and the why is what drives everything. You know, like why does my guitar tone not sound like Andy Sneaps, even though I have <laughs> the entire rig supposedly the same? You know, you have to kind of go piece by piece and figure out like, okay, what is the thing that I need to change here? What's not the same that's causing this different outcome? Why can I not tremolo pick super fast? Why can I not, yeah, why can I not feel relaxed in a situation in the studio where things aren't going as I intended them to go? You know, there's like all these kinds of mindset things or physical things or kind of scientific things where you kind of need to reflect on the outcomes you're getting. And I see quite a lot of the time in all sorts of scenarios, people kind of, they put together the raw components and just assume that the outcome is right. And a lot of the times it isn't, you know what I mean? Or it's not as good as it can be. Or they're overlooking something that they could be doing better. How did you develop that? Like, I don't mean how did you develop your skills, but how did you develop your ability to look at something and realize it could be better or something's off. The reason I'm asking is because of what you just said, which I've noticed, is that many people will assemble the pieces, get the result, and maybe recognize that it's not as good as they expected, but just accept that. Yeah. Just accept that and then do it the same way the next time. Or kind of weirdly get stoked about it. 
<laughs> yeah, because it's close. Weirdly get stoked about it because it's like closer to that thing they were going for than what they had before, but not totally there. I think, I mean, the answer is definitely not in any conscious way, at least for the first 25 years of my life or, or more. Like, you know, I think it's probably something to do with being an only child, having a lot of time on my hands, maybe just a certain mindset. My dad's kind of engineering minded. My mum's a linguist and very intelligent and always have all sorts of, you know, we had very kind of intellectual discussions at home as a kid. I know you did as well with, with, with your parents. Are you an only child, by the way? No, but I am the oldest, so. Okay, so you had a bit more time. Then, for whatever reason, I'm just wired a certain way. You know, what tends to happen is I'll have some benchmark experience, an emotional experience, you know, where you hear a piece of music as it was for me within whatever music I get into and it just lights some spark inside where it makes you feel a certain way and I just want to be able to repeat that experience you know it's something which you fall in love with which is ultimately what gets you into any kind of profession that you do where you're doing what you love like you kind of need to fall in love with it you need to have some experience that drives you into that otherwise you're just not going to be asking yourself that why you're not going to be comparing where you are to that benchmark that inspired you to that length so you know it's come it's taken a long time for me to come to come around to the idea that maybe this thing is a, it's kind of an emotional story really of trying to recreate a certain feeling and it not happening and the frustration <laughs> it's brought yep. out of frustration really and, and it's not like i don't know it's just a desire to be able to have that experience again and then that kind of scientific methodology thing, which I kind of alluded to before, it's like people are telling you, this is the way that you do the thing. So you follow those, those instructions. And in the beginning, you kind of go, well, I'm not very good at this yet. So I'm probably not doing it right. And then over time, you start to be like, pretty sure I'm doing exactly what these instructions are saying, and it's not coming out right. So, you know, that just, again, that's frustrating to me. It's like, I'm so desperate to relive that experience that, that I fell in love with in the first place. And yep. I'm not getting there, even though I'm supposedly doing the thing. And um, I, I, yeah, I really think it's born out of frustration. So it's almost like you're, you're you're just wired for this. Do you think so? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and like, because, man, I've wondered a lot, like, what is it? Well, I do think there's a nature and nurture thing going on. But I think that, like, people either have that, like, that chip <laughs> built in that makes them have that reaction that, like, this is the thing I'm going for. And uh, I'm not there, not stopping till I get there. Or they don't. And like you can't, I've noticed that you can't really instill that in somebody. Mm, it does make sense. And I've tried, I've tried, believe me, I have tried, but you can't. And then everyone I've met who's like that, they were already like that when, when I met them and when I started working with them and no matter what age they're at, like they were already like that. You didn't have to like train that into them or anything. The only thing you can train are specific skills, but not like their character. Like that's just there. Or those types of personality quirks are just there, I think. They happened way earlier. Listening to you saying that, I think, you know, I, I kind of said it without thinking too much, but I think that benchmark is super important to me. And I can understand why if you, you, you can't instill that in someone, like you can't make them fall in love with a certain experience. You know, maybe they think they want to be, I'm not talking about anyone in particular or any particular experience but you know maybe you've got someone in the studio who thinks they want to be a producer but they haven't actually fallen in love with the craft in such a way that they're then going to want to pursue it to pursue the the challenge of, of reflective improvement they kind of just like some aspect of it and it's not actually the being a producer or being a musician yep totally that i mean that's me when it comes to production i realized it wasn't for me 
Me too. You know, I think really I'm glad that I'm working with fewer bands because I think if I were to work with more bands, I, would, I wouldn't I would be doing the best job for them because ultimately I need to work with people that have a shared vision with me. Otherwise, I'm kind of just trying to use them and their music to make myself feel the feeling that I want to feel, which is fine as long as you're aligned. But it's really frustrating when you're working with bands who, you know, you're not on the same page with. It's really difficult, at least within metal, I think, where there tends to be less emotional expression tied up in it you know lyrically or something like that I can understand you know that I love listening to people like Rick Rubin talk about production and working with artists that feels like real creativity real human expression and right <laughs> you know somebody like Rick Rubin I think is like a connoisseur of emotion of, of human experience and he's just trying to translate that into an art and it's not it's not about any of the things that we talk about when we talk about producing metal mixes. It's just about art. No, but you know what? The engineers he works with do talk about those things. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So someone on that team does talk about those things. No doubt, no doubt. But I'm, you know, I'm just thinking of if you if you want to be able to work on music and connect emotionally with people, I think metal's probably not like with people's expression <laughs> yeah. um, and you want a diversity of that, then maybe metal isn't the, the first genre to look at. No, I, I totally agree with you. Can we talk about the cabs for a little bit? Because uh, sure. we're, we're coming close to the end of our time and I want to make sure that we talk about that. I want to hear about them. Yeah, sure. I, I'm sorry. I'm not really watching the time. I kind of feel oh, like it's... we're just having a chat. I feel like this could probably go on for ages. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Yeah, which is awesome. I just want to make sure we talk about the cabs some. Sure. I know they're awesome. Thank you. And I know that you don't just like throw shit together. No, no, it took, you know, it really does date back to, again, you know, there's falling in love with a certain guitar sound, which made me fall in love with guitar and want to play guitar and then made me want to be able to replicate that. I'm talking, you know, years before I ever did anything with production. I'm talking about like early teens without really knowing what it... You just wanted to sound cool, yeah, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's not even... I know you don't mean it like that, but it's not even about it being cool. It's just like it moved something in me, you know? No, no. Cool cool to you. Not like being like cool like in a popular sense. I mean like you wanted to make things that you personally thought sounded cool. Yeah, exactly. And just not, not achieving it and being really frustrated with it. And specifically, you know, so much of the, the voice of metal guitar for me comes back to the Vintage 30 speaker and mm -hmm. typically a Mesa Boogie cabinet. And... You know, I just, I deep dived into it. I think last time we spoke, I'd already started this this uh, journey, but... I think so, yeah. You know, I'd gotten a Mesa Boogie cab and it just didn't sound anything like it was supposed to. It just sounded <laughs> wrong. And that kind of, again, that's like, Been why? There. Why doesn't this sound right? I'm laughing because I feel your pain. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it's the pain of so many people, any, so many guitarists in metal is like, why doesn't my stuff sound... Why don't I have that perfect guitar tone? I've got every every ingredient to, to do it. And yeah, you know, just asking those questions why and investigating, I started to be like, well, okay, maybe it's to do with the speaker because if you move a speaker around different cabinets, the overall sound doesn't change that much. Not the fingerprint, not the part of the sound which I'm really focusing on, like that, the presence of it and the fizz on the top and just having that nice gnarly kind of character to it. That seems to be very much the speaker rather than anything else. And, um, you know, I read online and... I'd known for a long time about this like UK versus Chinese vintage 30 thing. So I started collecting them up and I quite quickly realized that it wasn't really about UK versus Chinese. It was just about a specific era where they just sounded different. And I managed to get a contact at Celestian who was able to confirm certain details, even though they, they typically don't confirm those details. And so that just led me down like trying to figure out. And I, I'm lucky enough to have the time and the means to kind of collect up all these cabs. I ended up with like 
14 or 15 Mesa Boogie 412s at any Dude, one time. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I actually just bought another one yesterday. So I, I'd swore myself off cabs. But uh, when I see, you see, now I know like from the serial number on the cab, whether it's from the golden era, which means it's not the cab, but it's the speakers that came in it, which are kind of from a different date whenever they got made at Celestian and shipped over. And I kind of feel like, you know, speakers are... They're these complete unique creations. They're all snowflakes in their own way. You know, like there's such a, a kind of rudimentary system with this paper cone that's really variable and depending on how it's glued in really minute ways, just really changes the well, the formula and then the, like the minutiae of its construction lead to a unique result. So I kind of, when I see a cab out there or a speaker out there that I know is from that golden era, I kind of want to have it just protect yep. it from time you know from, um and, and you know for in the future I, I know that's a unique sound i can go to and it, you know it was very satisfying and i bothered andy sneep about it a lot and i think he thought i was a complete weirdo um for being so obsessed with his messy boogie cab and you know another thing i should say about like this kind of obsessive nature is it's not necessarily that i think that that's the only cool thing i'm just stuck on it because the formula is not working you know but when, once i achieve it i'm kind of like yeah. oh cool you know, it, totally. and, and along the way, I might come across perfectly good other sounds, but until I achieve that benchmark, I feel like I don't have the right perspective to to judge other things. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And benchmark, that's a good word to use because we know that there's this, I don't want to say perfect, but like there's this like iconic, universal, amazing tone within this combination of tools that has been revealed and unlocked by other people and when you're trying to get it and you're not not quite there it's super frustrating mm -hmm. and why even fuck with anything else until you've got like i feel like it's it's a distraction to like set a goal and then start working on something else yeah yeah and and for me it's it is an obsession you know accomplish the thing you set out to do then do something else i really agree and and you know it for me, it is very much an, a kind of, there's a certain feeling that I get from that initial experience. And I want to recreate that. But it's not necessarily, the, I'm not saying like, I need to have the guitar sound from a specific record. There'll be something about that where when mm -hmm. you have that piece of the puzzle, actually the whole world opens up again because you know how to achieve that one thing. And actually, you, you, I'm not as rigid as people might think I am. Like, it doesn't always have to be exactly Andy Sneap settings with a tube screamer with a cab. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I know if I have that speaker, it gives a certain voice that I really like. And I tend to find it quite frustrating when I work with people that are incredibly obsessed with a perfect sound because I don't necessarily think those exist. And... For me, if I'm getting the right feeling from something, that's that's cool. I can accept it not being identical to this this other thing, you know? Yes. It's just about it reaching that benchmark. And I do think benchmarks may be a good word because it's not about trying to achieve some, you know, platonic ideal which doesn't really exist anyway. This stuff is hard to explain. Mm. When I think about a lot of these things, I, the kind of thing that comes into my mind is a bit like just wanting to see a map complete. Like being able to... If you imagine, you know, if, if you make a an analogy of trying to get a guitar sound in the studio is trying to get from A to B walking through countryside. And, you know, they've got like all sorts of different terrains you've got to traverse. Mm -hmm. You kind of know where the start and the end point, well, you know where you're supposed to end. There are certain points where you say you need to cross a river. You need to make it to a specific point across this bridge. And if you don't make it to that point, you're just never going to make it across to the next side. The more times you kind of walk that same terrain, 
the more of a winding path you can take, like the further away you can go, you can explore areas you've never been before. And yet your vision of the map in your head is so complete that you can always get back to those important points so that you can make it across to the next point. You can make it to the end without getting lost and spending all of your time, like, you know, trying to figure out how to get over the first hurdle. Well, kind of back to what you said about repetition, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and I think that is... That is an analogy that works for me, where it's like now, having done all of the neural cabs or most of the neural cabs, having developed the GGD Cali stuff, having, you know, worked as a guitarist and dialed in tones, it's like it actually feels very open and easy to achieve a guitar sound that I'm happy with. And I can achieve it in many different ways. There's certain things where I just know, like you were saying, like this isn't working. Okay, this needs to be changed for this other thing. And then actually the rest of the space is really open and fun and creative. And that's, I think, the beauty of achieving experience in something and the joy of it in pretty much anything you do, you know, is that freedom that it gives you. Once you once you know which pieces of the puzzle need to be in place, it's the freedom that you then have to explore everything else that you can, uh, you know, come up with unique and surprising results that still always you've managed to get from A to B. And it's only doable through neurotic, neurotic obsession <laughs> with all the little well, details for a long period of time. <laughs> or I think just living life, you know, if, how long it takes depends on how much repetition you do and how effective your repetition yep. is. I think some people on their deathbed kind of realize certain things about their lives and other people before they hit their 20s are wiser than 99.99% of people. And it's about the experiences that they've had and their ability to reflect on it and the ability to kind of figure out what works. Yeah, it took me a little longer than my 20s, but... Uh, oh, me too, me too, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I've only, uh, you know, started to like do that in the past few years, but, uh, you know... Me too. <laughs> we all go at our, at our own pace, but I think this is a good place to end it. I want to thank you for taking the time to chat. It's always, always a pleasure and it's so cool watching you and uh you know everyone in your camp just do cool thing after cool thing after cool thing after cool thing it's like uh you and uh your people are constant inspiration for me just because of the prolific level of output and then the quality of that output is just cool really wow. really cool shit that's immensely kind of you to say thank you man and, and as you know things always they're quite different on the inside you know you see from the outside all the all the achievements and life is a lot more mundane than it probably appears from the outside but i'm, I'm incredibly grateful to really you know just that life has given me the opportunity to to indulge these obsessions and and to i'm also grateful to be able to then have a platform very grateful to the the people i do business with with my team at ggd who really fill in so many of my my blanks uh in terms of actually putting things out there because i do feel like it's for the general good to have people be more satisfied with the music they can make at home and i, and I do totally. feel quite quite proud and grateful to have the opportunity to, to help people out with that so it's a great thing yeah, yeah. Thanks, and you too, man. You know everything that you've achieved with Nail the Mix, and now all of your other endeavors as well. And I'm, I'm excited to hear Darth with uh, modern production and, and unfiltered. Well, thank you. Uh, Alness. I think that's going to be that's going to be awesome. Well, thank you very much. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it's awesome. <laughs> we shall see. <laughs> well, I hope I get to hear it anyway. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. Oh, my pleasure. All right then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at URM Audio at URM Academy and of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition... 
Do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.